The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm with Nick Lardy, who is the Anthony M. Solomon Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and is, in my view, one of America's outstanding experts on China's economy. He has just come out with a book which has the wonderful title of Markets Over Mao. Um, Nick, why this book? Why now? This book primarily because I think there's a huge misperception that China is largely a state-driven economy. Uh, that the government controls most of the enterprises, they're employing most of the people. But when you start looking more closely, that turns out not to be the not to be the case. And it has a big impact on the way we look at China, our policy towards China. And so I think it's time to have a greater clarity on what the role of the state actually is. Who thought of the title? That's a great title. It's funny because I was looking back when I was finishing the book at the at the titles of your other books, which were rather. Um, more pedestrian. More pedestrian, <laughs> exactly. And this one, Markets Over Mao, is kind of very catchy. It was a great guy who uh, worked for me as a research assistant for a couple of years. He came up with the title, so I can't claim any uh, credit. If the analysis, which is basically that, that you know, the, the common wisdom today is that, you know, it still is predominantly state-owned that over the last... Um, you know, especially since the especially since the financial crisis in 08, we've seen increased uh, GDP growth out of the state sector and less GDP growth out of the private sector. And you're basically turning that on its head. Absolutely. In the industrial sector, the private firms, entrepreneurial firms are growing twice as fast as the state companies. Uh, and the same thing seems to also be true in the service sector, although it's a little bit more difficult to measure. What's the division in the manufacturing and the service center, service sector between state and private? In uh, 2014, in, 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 out, in output, uh, in manufacturing, uh, in, in industry, state companies are responsible for about a quarter of output. There are a few collective companies left, and about seventy percent is private. You rely on kind of China government-produced data. Are you comfortable with that? I am. I think the data are reasonably good. And for those who doubt it, I guess the question I always raise is what incentive do the government agencies producing these data have to show us that year after year, decade after decade, the private sector is outperforming the state sector? Uh, I think that's the reality, and I don't think there's any incentive for the authorities to show the state companies as failing. Again, if you're right... Why is the common wisdom wrong? Why is it that so many scholars have written kind of the other way? Well, I think, uh, I, first, I think of some of the reporting has tended to emphasize the role of the state. And it is true that the state is still very, very dominant in a few sectors where foreign firms have had great difficulty. Telecommunications would certainly be one. Financial services, which is very... Foreign or private? Both. Mm-hmm. Both foreign, or domestic, private, and foreign firms have had a hard time uh, entering into the financial sector, the telecommunications sector, upstream oil and gas. So these are the kind of hardcore 
uh, state-dominated components of the economy where a few state firms have very strong positions. They're basically monopolies, and the regulators won't let other people in. And so I think that informs a lot of the, of the dialogue. But what people haven't noticed is that in manufacturing, which is quite open, foreign firms have a very large role, domestic private firms have a very large role, and the state companies are fading away. What does he think it means for U.S. policy towards China? That a lot of our policy is kind of an underlying assumption of it is this is still predominantly a state-controlled economy. Well, I think the implication for U.S. policy is that we need to take much more seriously the claim and the statement that the party made a year ago that they were going to have market forces be the dominant decisive force in the allocation of resources. And basically what my book shows is this is already true in very large parts of the economy, and it needs to be expanded into those domains where uh, state companies still have protected positions. So I think it's basically an optimistic story. What about a lot, some would criticize saying that even in areas where it's not necessarily state-owned, what we have is the state protecting domestic firms vis-a-vis foreign firms, and how should we approach that? There certainly is some of that. Uh, certainly, the state does protect domestic firms against foreign firms, and certainly in the domains that I just mentioned. Uh, but the state companies, I mean, a lot of people think that state banks, for example, are doing the bidding of the state and supporting state companies, but the reality is they're lending more money to private companies than they are to state companies. The, there's been a big transformation of, of the financial sector even these state companies that dominate in finance are much more commercially oriented than they were a decade or two ago. What was the most, when you started this, because were you surprised by the data, or did you start kind of thinking, well, it probably is more market than the, than the common wisdom is? Well, I had a... F- I had a few data points, and as you mentioned, during the global financial crisis when there was a huge increase in credit, many people asserted that it was going predominantly to to state companies. And then you look at how fast the state companies are growing. They're growing half as fast as private companies, so maybe they're not getting as much credit as some people assert. And so as you dig deeper and deeper, you find more and more evidence that private firms have done really very well over the entire 35 years of economic reform and continuing during the global financial crisis. Back to this question of kind of protecting domestic firms to the detriment of foreign firms. How do you kind of account for, you know, let's say Baidu, a very successful uh, domestic but privately owned firm where Google which would have been their natural competitor, left because of government kind of control of the business. How does that kind of make you think about the state's role in the economy, even though this would not show up in the data? It would show, well, this is private. It's it's part of that private side of the ledger, not the state-owned. Yet it was the state that generated that revenue, that additional revenue for Baidu. Well, I mean, this is one of the complexities of the Chinese economy. Many times the state is doing things that enhance the role of domestic private firms. I think when you get into media and the Internet, uh, the government and the party want to be in strong control. I don't think they're going to allow 
in, in publishing and tele, I mean, television and media in general are going to be controlled by the party even as they move to a more market economy. So I think this is an area where I don't anticipate a much bigger role for the market. I think it will still be very limited. But the state had available to it mechanisms which could have allowed Google to stay in business in China but, tr but kind of push them out. That you could block as you do now, particular searches and s retain control right. rather I, than blocking it entirely. Well, I, I, I don't know the details, but I think Google felt very awkward operating under the conditions that, that you mentioned where they were constrained in the kinds of services that they could provide, so they basically decided to withdraw, is my interpretation of what happened. But it was because the government had a lot of constraints on uh, the kinds of services they could offer, the kind of, the kind of information that could be provided to Chinese citizens. So... I think rather than accepting this government censorship, they withdrew and now allow Chinese to try to access their information through Hong Kong and other sources. How does corruption fit into the analysis? Well, corruption's a complicated thing. I don't say very much about it in the book, but I do believe that the anti-corruption campaign is a positive in terms of moving towards more market-dominated uh, economy. Zhou Yangkang, the security czar who's been taken down really spent most of his career in the oil and gas industry, and all the people that were with him in that industry have been uh, put under house arrest or are under investigation, and I think it sends a signal to the big, big state companies in the areas where there's not been liberalization that business as usual is not going to continue, that the corruption is going to be ended, and there's going to be more competition in the sector, and I think we're already beginning to see that in oil and gas. Having the benefit of having you up here today, I can't let you finish this interview without asking you about the Chinese economy in 2015. How do you think it's going to be doing? What do you think the risks are? What do you think the upside is? Well, there are risks. The, the financial sector is increasing risk, but I think they're going to work their way through it. They're slowing down the growth of credit. They're getting very strong growth of consumption, which is helping to offset the decline in investment in property, uh, which has been a big drag on the economy for the last uh, couple of years. The service sector is growing very rapidly, so I'm hoping that they're beginning at, a, at the beginning of transition where they move towards growth that is generated more by consumption reflected in larger, uh, more rapid growth of the service sector and a more modest growth of the industrial sector, which, after all, produces most of the investment goods, the steel and all the things that go into property, for example. So I think if they push ahead on the reforms, uh, there, is, there is a little bit of upside, uh, enough upside to offset part of the decline in investment in housing, which has been a big factor. How would you measure the, the, the third plenum reforms were, you know, what they're called for are quite spectacular. The they have not reached their potential, I think, would be a fair way of putting it. Absolutely. How do you measure yeah, Absolutely. The they, movement? Ha they haven't reached their potential, I think, in many domains. Uh, the, the program that was outlined was to be achieved by 2020. I think they've made some very good initial first steps. They've licensed five private banks that are completely private. They've never had completely private banks. Union Pay, which has been monopoly payment agency for credit cards, is losing its monopoly. They're going to allow competition in that sector. They're adding more competition in the telecom sector by leasing space on the existing infrastructure to new, to new uh, competitors. Um, the, airline, the private airlines are being uh, uh, now allowed to cut their fares. I mean, China's had low-cost airlines for 
a decade, but they haven't been able to charge lower fares, so they don't get much market share. Uh, that's beginning to change, so the state incumbent airlines will feel uh, more competition. So I think when you look at transport, finance, telecommunications, uh, PetroChina, excuse me, Sinopec is selling off a big chunk of its downstream distribution business. So I think if you look at those areas where the state has remained dominant and precluded the entry of private, including foreign players, we're, we're seeing some forward movement. I think it needs to accelerate. We need to see more. But uh, it has started. Do you think that story is being told in America? That they are making progress? Um, do you think it's I think... I think on balance, probably not. I think the, the general view seems to be that nothing's happening. Um, but I, you, you, know, you do have to look pretty closely to see some of these things. But Union Pay, which has had the monopoly on card payments, that is a huge monopoly. And foreign companies have been trying to get into that market for 10, 15 years. Uh, but the monopoly is going, according to the, according to the government. We'll, we'll see. I know the answer to this question, but given the headline in this morning's Wall Street Journal that the bilateral trade deficit with China had reached a new high of 35 plus billion dollars. What's causing it and does it matter? Well, I think the overall context is very important and that is uh, China's global surplus is relative to the size of it, its economy is about a fifth of what it was uh, seven years ago. So China as an imbalancing factor in the global economy has declined pretty dramatically, and they have allowed their currency to appreciate quite a bit. And even now, when the uh, environment in many countries has led to depreciations vis-a-vis the dollar, Japan would be the obvious example, Europe, uh, China's not going down that road. So I think when uh, President Obama goes to China in a couple of days, that uh, this is not going to be a big item on the agenda. I knew that answer because you taught it. You taught that answer to me. Well, I've had Nick Lardy with with me today. He has just come out with this book, Markets Over Mao. It is a must-read for both the expert and the generalists. Read it. You will learn a lot. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Steve.